This is homecoming season all across the country. Really, millions of people will go back to their high schools or their colleges. And it occurred to me this week as I was reflecting on that, that part of what they're going to experience is what we talked about all summer. They're going to celebrate what they experienced there when they were part of that school. Uh, They're going to think about, now, where has my life taken me? As they think about an orientation of where they're focused in life. They'll, of course, do a lot of reflection, and then they'll look forward, won't they, and do some expectation of what the rest of their lives will look like. Dawn and I graduated a few years ago and yesterday ran down to Trinity College because it was their uh, homecoming and my 40th, believe it or not, yesterday and spent a few minutes down there just thinking about all that God's done in 40 years. This week, three families celebrated the ultimate homecoming. The Cervenka family was one. And when you walk that journey, may I suggest, it causes you to think about priorities, And if I'm, in fact, building a legacy for God's glory, how do I feel about the priorities of my legacy? So do you see what I wrote for you on the front of your worship folder? Priorities shape legacies. We provide our priorities both time and resources. Priorities reign in the life of a person, a family, a business, a church, even a government. And when priorities clash, there's trouble. So could I urge you sometime later today, take a moment, and what are the top three priorities in your life or your legacy? Jot them down there. Then take another moment. What are God's three top priorities for your life and your legacy? And then compare those two lists and ask God to talk to you about it just a little bit. Could I invite you to join me going back in time into one of the great homecomings of all time? In your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19. Because last week, I took you there, and if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of represent all of you by saying, how about if we take off our shoes, and you don't have to do that, but but I will representing all of you, and step into the sandals of the people who accompanied Moses going up to the mountain. Can we do that? Because I think the more that you and I can put ourselves in the story, the more that we'll understand what God was trying to say to those people and to us. You remember how it happened? You may remember that Moses was minding his own business, tending sheep. And on a mountain, all of a sudden, a bush caught fire. And out of that bush on fire came a voice that called him by name. God was speaking to him, and God said, Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And as God explained to him, I'm going to send you back, and I'm going with you, and we're going to lead a million people out of slavery. Put your sandals back on, it's time to get to work. And over the last couple of weeks, we've followed their journey. So put yourself back in with me to a million people who've come out of slavery, they've come to the mountain. And they're going to spend some time there now as God talks to them about this. About building legacy, a personal legacy, a family legacy, an entire nation's legacy for God's great glory. And this morning, take a close look at your priorities. Do they need to be redefined or reprioritized? Because in chapter 19, verse 4, it says... Verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. 
That's an identity statement. You see, building a legacy starts with asking yourself a couple of very important questions. The first one, who am I? And maybe, whose am I? In other words, what's most important in my life, that I'm living my life to please that person or that objective? Moses here was being told by God, you're going to be speaking to a group of people, and it's their biological DNA that identifies them. They're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. But there are some other people at the mountain. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that as Moses freed them and the Israelites left, many other people went with them. Right here, God was drawing in the sand a line of demarcation. There's a difference between you and them. Our theme verse this year tells us that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So I want to suggest that the best answer to that is, what is your spiritual DNA? Not your biological DNA, not the business that you work for. Is that what defines you? God says it is. And then God goes on and says to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Hugely important for us to be able to ask the question, so what is God doing in my world? How do I recognize the evidence that God is at work? That's what Moses was asking the people to recognize. Hebrews tells us that it's important for you and me to recognize that Jesus, by his death, defeated the one who held our world in fear. The dark kingdom, sin, Satan, and death has been defeated by Jesus. God goes on and says to Moses, tell the people, you need to recognize that I brought you to myself. Our theme verse this year says that that God has reconciled us to him through Christ. Colossians chapter 1, it's there for you in your notes, it says, once you were alienated from God, enemies, but now he has reconciled you. So God, as I try to reprioritize, I try to understand who I am, what are you doing around me is important, but what are you doing in me? is really important. I wonder how you answer those three questions. Who are you? How do you identify yourself? What is God doing around you and you can recognize and see it? And what is God doing in you? And then he said one more thing. Tell the people that if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So who are you becoming? Who will you be after God completes in you all the work that he would like to complete and all that he's designed you for? But you also recognize here that this covenant relationship is on the basis of if you'll obey me and keep my covenant, my law, But when Jesus Christ came, of course, he fulfilled that and said it's not about keeping the law anymore. It's about relationship, isn't it? And so do you see what I wrote for you there, my dear friends, in your notes? Stand in the crowd at the hillsides, the hillside of Mount Sinai, the hillside of Golgotha, the hillside of the Mount of Olives, and listen to what God is saying there. He's speaking powerful, personal words which by his definition define his people and the relationships that he'd like us to live in with him. And ask yourself, do you understand what he's saying? Is he inviting you? Is he describing who you are by his definition? So what does this relationship look like? This relationship with God should define our values 
and our priorities. As you know, there in that 19th chapter, they went and they met with God. We saw that last week. And they heard God actually speak. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God was beginning there, my friends, to describe what is this relationship, this new life that you and I should be living, not according to rules and regulations, but in the relationship that only he could offer us. And yet, what the people heard was a list of ten rules and regulations. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not misuse my name. And on and on. At the end of that, the people backed away and said, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to hear God's voice anymore. We're frightened by what he says. We, we, we might even die. Do you remember that Jesus said, I haven't come here to judge you. I've come here so that you can have life. Have it to the fullest. And that so many people said, no, it's, it's God. God, it's too frightening for you to be close. Stay further at a distance. What does it look like when you and I live in this God-designed relationship? Well, what I see here is what God was trying to say in that 20th chapter and all through the Bible, that, that he's inviting us to live freedom with boundaries, not aimless living. He's inviting us to see that these priorities are protective priorities, that when you live with these statements and others like it, as a priority in your life, it'll protect you from some of the damage and danger in life. It's not intended to be restrictive rules. It's a wonderful way for you and me to build a God-honoring legacy and not live in our freedoms self-destructively. Would you agree it's what parenting is all about? And from the time that your children were able to understand your words and recognize you as parents, your job and mine was to take them from infancy all the way until they drove out of the driveway on their own. And our job was to help them learn how to draw the boundaries in any set of circumstances to make the right decisions. Do you agree with that? That's why when we send our kids off to college and it's 11 o'clock at night and they've got an exam at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and they haven't even started to study and at the door comes the knock, hey, we're going out for pizza, let's go. They're able to sit there and think, not what's the rules, not what would mom and dad do if they were here, what is best for me? What are the boundaries in this moment of decision-making that will help me to be a God-honoring man or woman and to grow in this moment of experience in a way that keeps me developing in who God's called me to be. These aren't rules and regulations intended to restrict you and me into some kind of monastic living. God's invited us into a freedom out of the slavery of that which held us. But he's calling us to understand we need to live our life of freedom with boundaries. Do you agree with that? And I see that in that 23rd chapter, the second verse, God says, now here's how you live this out. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do you see that there? If you like to underline in your Bible, that might be a verse you might want to consider, especially if you're a young person in this room. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong because the pressure of peer pressure all around us can pretty easily cause you to turn away from all the things that your family has tried to help you understand to be best for you. In that 23rd chapter, the 12th verse, it says that God said to Moses, tell the people, 
Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that you may be refreshed. And in the 31st chapter, he goes on and explains it a little more. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. What's God saying to Moses there, to the people? These are a people who all they've known is work as slaves. Over and over again, I'm sure they heard from their slave masters, you have no value on this planet except work. You have no rights on this planet unless we give them to you. You have no voice. Just work. You and I probably grew up in in an environment where you found that your teachers seemed to honor you and celebrate you when you got good grades. And so you worked to get them. Your, Your bosses affirmed you, didn't they, when you fulfilled your job description and then were ready to do more. And so you worked. We are a working nation that very easily finds that our value, our self-esteem, comes from our work. Do you agree? God says here, be careful. I have made you to work, but I've made you to live your life in balance. A relationship with God calls us to live our lives in balance. God was saying to Moses to tell these slaves, it's going to be a new way, so you work hard for six days, and on the seventh, you rest. In fact, I'm going to give it a new name. It's called Sabbath. You rest your mind. You rest your heart. You rest your body. And you refresh. Right? You see, he was saying relationships need to take priority over tasks. Did you get that? Because we have a tendency to prioritize tasks over relationships, don't we? And almost always, men, let me ask you, what is the one thing most men regret when they come to the end of their life and they look back? I spent too much time working. I wish I could go back and spend more time with my family. Am I right? Relationships need to be prioritized over accomplishing tasks. That's part of this new living in relationship with God that he's invited us to. Refreshment in the balance. And then this concept of being generous with our time. That's people going to Honduras to help other people who who desperately need the help and people here setting aside all that is weighing heavy on them to go and be generous with their time. I hope you're seeing that what God is doing with Moses is redefining a whole new way to live. In that 23rd chapter, in the 20th verse, he says, let me give you another one, Moses. Look, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Do what he says. Don't rebel against him. What is that all about? God is saying when you live your life in relationship with me, it's followership. (laughs) I've designed it that your life will work much better when you follow me in relationship. I will go with you. Do you remember that the Lord Jesus said, I'll ask the Father and he'll send a counselor to be with you, to guide you, to teach you, to lead you. But so easily, do you find that you and I feel it's not only our right, but our responsibility to chart our own course in life, to define my my goals, my objectives, my dreams, my hopes, and chase after them with all of my energy. How many times have you sat with someone toward the end of their life and they say, I chased it, 
but I chased the wrong thing. And when I finally got it, it was empty. There was no fulfillment there at all. What would it be like to really live the rest of your life and mine in this I call followership? It's the combination of relationship with God and following him. Do you see what I wrote for you there, my dear friends? I wrote in your notes, my life journey is designed to walk in lockstep with God on a God-guided path to a God-assured destination. That's what the Cerveka family is celebrating this weekend. That their, their dad, their granddad, their great-granddad walked his journey as best he knew in a God-guided path and is now in his God-assured destination. It's walking a God-guided path to a God-assured destination in lockstep with Jesus. But that is so counterculture to the way most everybody else is living life. Can you? Can I? In the 24th chapter, it tells us that God then said to Moses in verse 12, Now Moses, come on up the mountain again. Only this time he added two, a couple of words. And stay here with me. He had never said that before. And I'll give you the tablets of stone and the laws and the commandments that I've written for you and for their instruction. And so it says in verse 13 that Moses set out with Joshua and they went up on the mountainside. This is powerful. It tells us that when he got to the top of the mountain, the cloud was there, a thick, dark cloud. And Joshua and Moses sat together outside the cloud for six days. I wonder what they talked about. My guess is, as they looked down the mountainside and saw all the people down there, they told each other the stories of what they've been experiencing the last several weeks, months together. The plagues, the Red Sea, the manna, the water gushing out of a rock, God bringing the people here. I wonder if Moses told Joshua the story again, maybe even pointing to the place. It's right over there where the burning bush caught fire and my life changed. But somewhere along in the journey, I have to believe that Joshua finally said, Moses... That's a pretty dark cloud. If he invites you in there, are you really going to go in? What do you suppose is in there, Moses? What do you think might happen to you if you go in there? What if you never come out? Moses was moving into the depth of a relationship with God that very few people reach. It tells us there, do you see it in that 24th chapter? The 18th verse. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went out up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights in the cloud with God. I want to suggest to you, my dear friends, this is living a life in authentic God intimacy. Not afraid of God. Not afraid to take huge steps of faith with God. Not afraid to go up the mountain with God in a way that you've never gone before. It's a, I'm calling it a whole life-dependent relationship with God, recognizing that every breath you take, every day you live, everything about you is entirely dependent, and therefore, you want to have as close a relationship with God as you possibly can to understand how He thinks to understand what he's saying when he speaks to you through his word, to understand where he's leading you in life. It's going to bring change and growth to your life. You're going to learn a lot of things in the journey with God. 
It's going to penetrate. His word, his truth, his power is going to penetrate your life, going to permeate your life. And I would understand if you said, no, it's too much, Pastor Doug. Most people do. There are very few people in the journey with Jesus, both when he was here and ever since, who've gone to that level. But those who do, they experience the depth of a relationship with God, and the impact of their lives in our world is unbelievable. Is he inviting you to that today? In the 25th chapter, and from the 25th chapter to the 31st chapter, Moses records for us what happened inside the cloud. And the first thing that God said, believe it or not, to him was, look at it there. Moses, tell the people to bring me an offering. What does that mean? Tell the people to bring me an offering. Part of what I think God was doing there was saying, Moses, in this deep relationship that we're going to have, the people in me, I want you to understand what it means to live entirely dependent upon me. I will fully resource my people. Remember, our theme verse calls us ambassadors. Ambassadors are fully resourced by the one who sends them. I think God was saying to Moses, I want you to ask yourself the question, Can you be trusted as God entrusts you with his full resources for his purposes? You remember that as the people were leaving leaving Egypt, God said, ask your slave owners for gifts, and they loaded them down with the bounty. So when God said, Moses, tell the people, bring me an offering, they were no longer penniless slaves. They had the bounty of Egypt in their tents. The question was, would they recognize it as God's gift to them for the purpose of accomplishing God's purposes in the world? Or would they hold it like we often do? Pastor Chuck has referred to this little book, may I just read to you a little story out of it? Very first page. In 1990, the author says, I was pastor of a large church, making a good salary and earning royalties on my books. I'd been a pastor for 13 years, and then suddenly something happened that turned my family upside down. I was on the board of directors of a crisis pregnancy center. We had opened our home, my wife and I, to a pregnant teenager, helping her to carry her baby to full term and then give her baby up for adoption. We'd seen the joy of her coming to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. I began to feel an even greater burden for the unborn, and after searching the Scripture in much prayer, I began participating in peaceful, nonviolent rescues at local abortion clinics. For this, I was arrested and sent to jail. An abortion clinic won a court judgment against a group of us. I told a judge that I would pay anything I owed, but I could not hand over the money to people who used it to kill babies. Then I discovered that my church was about to receive a writ of garnishment, demanding that my church surrender one-fourth of my wages every month to the abortion clinic. The church would have to either pay the abortion clinic or defy a court order. To prevent this from happening, I resigned my salary. I'd already divested myself of all my book royalties. The only way I could avoid garnishment was to make no more than minimum wage. Fortunately, our family had already been living frugally on less than my full salary, and we just made our final house payment, so we were out of debt. Then came another court judgment involving another abortion clinic 
Though our actions had been nonviolent, the clinic was awarded the largest judgment ever against a group of peaceful protesters, $8.2 million. This time it seemed likely that we would lose everything, including our house. By all appearances, and certainly by the world's standards, our lives had taken a devastating turn, right? Wrong. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Ironically, I had written extensively about God's ownership in my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. But within a year of its publication, I owned nothing. God was teaching me in the crucible of adversity the life-changing implications of this principle. God owns everything. I am his money manager. <laughs> I realized that our house belonged to God, not us. If we lost our house, God knew we needed a house. He had plenty of houses. He could help us find one. But understanding ownership was only half of my lesson. If God was the owner and I was the manager, I needed to adopt a steward's mindset toward the assets that he had entrusted, not given to me. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets that he manages. It's his job to find out what the owner wants done with the assets and then carry out the owner's will. Moses, tell the people all they have, I gave it to them. And I want him to bring some of it because there's something special I'd like to do with it. But then he said, I realize not everybody's heart is going to be open to that. So the next verse says, You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose, what? Heart prompts them to give. You see, a big part of this new relationship that you and I are invited to with God is a heart change relationship. It's important for you and me to ask ourselves a couple of questions as we live life with a guarded heart. Is my heart protected from the voices that would seek to cause me, to, to, to encourage me to see all that I have as mine, that I earned, that I deserve, rather than all that I have is God's that he has entrusted to me? Is my heart tender to hear what God says to me about how he would like me to use what he's entrusted to me. Is my heart joy obedient? That when I discern what God's saying to me about the resources that he's entrusted to me, with great joy I will respond, yes, when he tells me, give it away. Give it to this need or that person. Ah, we've reached a point of demarcation, haven't we? Because, of course, not only have we been taught from the times that we were little children, work hard because it's your achievement that will be your identity. We've also been taught as soon as you get it, grab it tight because lots of other people want to get their hands on it. And you deserve it. Hide it under your bed if you have to. Don't let anybody get near it. And God says, open them up. Let me put in your hands what I want to put in your hands. But as you receive it, remember, none of it is yours. None of it. It's all mine. And I'm entrusting it to you with open hands. Can I trust you to not clutch it? Can I trust you to hold your hand open and then listen to use it 
for my great glory and accomplishing my great purposes in the world. Do you get that, my dear friends? Do you find it interesting that over and over and over when we put the microphone in front of our dear friends who've been to Honduras and Haiti and Uganda and Kenya and the Czech Republic, one of the things they tell us is, I don't understand how these people, the poorest people on the planet, can be so joyful. How can it be that they live in shacks, have nothing, but when they worship, they lift the roof off the place where they're worshiping? How can it be that their hearts can be so full? I lived there. I grew up there. You know how it is? None of it's mine. Everything I get comes from God. And so I praise him for the shack that I'm in. And if I find out that my neighbor has a worse shack than I have, God, you gave it to me to help him. Isn't that what you've heard as you've gone around the world? Oh, my. Yes, it's what you've heard when you've gone around the world. How can we get there? How can we get to the place of being a people who recognize it's all his, entrusted to God's people, so that he can change the world through God's people who aren't clutching but are holding it open? Our time, our talents, our abilities, the resources that he's entrusted with us. But very likely the people were saying, so God, you don't need our money. What are you going to do with it? Eighth verse is the last one I want to give you of the 25th chapter. God says to Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will come and dwell among them. Wow. God's saying, I'm not satisfied with being far away. I want to come and live with my people. That's why Jesus came here, to be with us, to help us to know him, to hear his truth. God is saying, as you entrust it to me, your time, your talents, your resources, I will use it for my great glory because I am living among you. When Jesus was ready to leave, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will send my spirit to live with you, to guide you. Can you get a picture, my dear friends, of what happens when hundreds of millions of us all around the world live like that? God's people, with God dwelling among us by the power of his Holy Spirit, recognizing that every day is a gift from God, a day to be used for God's glory, to bring the hope and the help into our broken world of Jesus Christ. The hope and help of Jesus Christ into our broken world. Every breath is a breath that he's given us. used for his glory. Every dollar is a dollar he's given us that is his dollar for him to lead us and how to use it for his glory. When we begin to capture that and understand that, everything changes. Everything. And then we begin to live life the way that God designed it to be lived in this very close intimacy with God. As Moses was up in that dark cloud with God for 40 days and 40 nights, don't you suppose he was thinking, what are the going to people think when I come to them and I tell them all that God has told me? This is so contrary to the way that we normally live. But what could happen? if we could live at this kind of a relationship with God. As the men serve us communion this morning, please see it as a celebration that God didn't just speak from some faraway place, but he came here to live among us, to make it possible for us to understand this and experience it. Because as Jesus went to the cross, he broke the hold of the fear 
the anxiety, the anger, the sin, the selfishness that holds all of us back from living this kind of a life. As he rose up out of the grave, he proved himself victorious over sin, Satan, and death. As he rose back, as he returned back to heaven, where he reigned sovereign and supreme, sending his Holy Spirit to live with us, it's possible, it's real, to live in this kind of a God-described, God-defined relationship. But it's a choice every single day. Do you agree with that? So what's our choice today? Let's talk to him about that as we prepare to receive communion. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you so much that your word has been protected and retained for us over all these years so we can, in fact, put on our sandals and step back more than 3,000 years into the story of Moses and these people. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming here and living these truths and proclaiming them again clearly for us. And thank you, Jesus, for defeating sin, Satan, and death to make it possible for us to be free of the chains that hold us, forgiven of the sin that condemns us, and invited into this kind of a relationship with Almighty Holy God. We prepare our hearts now to receive the bread that represents your body that was beaten, brutalized, as you took upon yourself the wrath of God for the sin of the world. Here at Calvary Community Church, you don't need to be a member of our church to receive the Lord's table. We just ask that you're sure that you've trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And if you never have, right now is a wonderful moment to do that, right where you sit. Just acknowledging in the quietness of your heart and mind as you speak to God that, yes, Jesus is who he claimed to be, God incarnate. And yes, when he died on the cross, he did, in fact, pay the full payment for your sin. So that, yes, you can be adopted into God's family. A new spiritual nature can be birthed in you by the Holy Spirit of God. And you can live in this relationship with God we've been talking about this morning. Why don't we just remain in an attitude of prayer, you talking to God, as the men now come and serve us the bread.